welcome. Uh, I uh, am usually uh, here very early on Sunday mornings, and uh, last week I was on vacation, and so my wife and I, for a change, decided let's just come to the first service, and for maybe the first time ever, we did that as a family, and it felt very strange for me to sleep in a little on a Sunday morning, and it was also stressful, I learned, to actually get kids ready to go to church. I had heard that this was possibly the case from my wife, but it turned out she was right. And um, so anyway, we arrived about five minutes early, and um, you know, we, I, we got Jack in the toddler room and Emma into the nursery, and we came in just in time as the service started, and I sat in the back row. And I have to admit, for the first few minutes of church, I had a very difficult time transitioning into this. Um, I couldn't seem to get my mind and my heart to focus on God. And it wasn't that my heart felt particularly cold, like freezing cold, but it definitely wasn't warm either. And that feeling of kind of spiritual indifference or you might call it lukewarmness, I don't like it at all. But I have to admit, I struggle with it at times. And I think that every Christian does. Uh, For most Christians, it's not just that as an occasional battle, but for most people, it's an ongoing war. And this passage is going to tell us this morning that that battle is a battle that's really worth fighting. 1 Timothy chapter 4 invites us to confront that draw towards lukewarmness and to, as Paul is is going to tell us, to train ourselves in godliness. Now we're heading uh, to the conclusion of a series that we began earlier this month that we called Family Ties. Uh, We believe that the church is not just meant to be an event or a seminar or a place that people come to get just a spiritual pep talk, but the church is meant to feel and to operate like a family. And if you're a little bit new around here, it it probably doesn't feel that way to you yet. Uh, That feeling and experience takes a little bit of time and involvement to develop, but that's really what we hope for every person who is a part of our church, that this place would feel like a home away from home, or better yet, a family away from family. And so what we've been trying to do the last few weeks is to speak to the different age categories that make up the church family. And today, we're going to take a look at those who are younger. Now, the Bible's definition of a young person is anyone up to age 40, okay? Now, before you slash my tires in the parking lot on the way out or shoot a spit wad, I I want you to know that that does not mean that anyone above age 40 is considered old. It just means that in in the biblical uh, category, those who are younger than age 40 are considered young. And so, while this passage applies to every person who's in this room, it's especially written to those who are on the younger side Uh, of the spectrum. One of the reasons that we know that, beyond just the wording of this passage, is that the letter was written from the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy, who was probably in his early to mid-30s, okay? He's probably somewhere between 33 and 35. 
And this young man, Timothy, uh, despite the age difference, Paul had an incredibly high opinion of. Uh, Paul refers to Timothy as being his friend and his co-worker. And beyond that, he even calls him, gives him the ultimate compliment, a son in the faith. Uh, Timothy became a companion of Paul, traveled all over the world with him, and in some cases, Paul sent Timothy as an emissary to speak whatever he would want spoken to a particular church or place. And Timothy, eventually, in, uh, he landed in a church that was in the city of Ephesus, and he was a leader in that church. And Paul says of Timothy in the book of Philippians, he says, there is nobody like Timothy who is so genuine and so committed. And so Timothy is this young man who is incredibly devoted, incredibly soft-hearted. However, he also has his weaknesses, and the Bible doesn't glaze over those. Timothy tended to be very fearful and anxious and timid, and it was to the degree that it began to cause him some stomach problems. And so Paul writes the book of 1 and 2 Timothy to give this young man some encouragement. And in this particular passage that we find ourselves in, he's going to talk about the big theme of godliness. And what Paul's going to talk about with Timothy is the benefits of godliness, the challenges of godliness, and how important it is to be an example of godliness. And Those are the three things that we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about uh, today, this morning. And so what we're going to do is just spend a little bit of time walking through this passage. And this is really quite a passage. I I hope you really get a lot out of Paul's words here. So let's start in verse 7. Paul says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Okay, so what are these irreverent, silly myths that Timothy is told to avoid? Well, these are like a big category that could include a lot of things. Superstitions, Jewish laws, gossip, half-truths. Okay, this might be things that are like platitudes and cliches, ideas that sound very uh, attractive and intriguing but end up actually to be very worthless. And so Paul says, don't waste your time on silly talk and silly thinking and fairy tales and dreaming. He says, instead, train yourself for godliness. Now, what is godliness exactly? Well, honestly, it's a little bit challenging to define what godliness is. We might think of it as kind of possessing the attributes of God or the fruits of the Spirit, like we did a series on a few months ago. Some people, when they think of godliness, they think of devotion or piety. But at its heart, godliness is simply a life that centers around God. A godly person lives a life that centers, that focuses around God. And what Paul says to Timothy is, train yourself for that. And what he's going to say is, he's going to say two very important things to know about godliness. First of all, he says, godliness is worth it. He says, it is of immense value. And that's the next thing he says, in fact. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, the Greeks 
put a lot of emphasis on physical fitness. Okay? It's said that they had a gym in every city. Uh, we, in our culture, tend to be that same way. It feels sometimes like there's a new gym that goes up every day, right? There's, there's one around here almost on every corner. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is working out is good. It's useful. It's important. However, it is of limited value. On the other hand, Paul says godliness is of limitless value. He says it is of value in every way. And first, he says, it holds promise in the here and now. Maybe you know somebody who who you would consider to be a very godly person, and you had an opportunity to be up close and personal with them when life threw them some kind of a curveball, and you got to see how they handled it. And you saw that they had a certain strength and hope and attitude and foundation. And maybe as you watched them, you said, what I wouldn't give to be like that. What money I wouldn't pay to have that sort of strength and integrity. And what you've seen is that godliness had value for the now. Godliness for that person was like an anchor for them, and it benefited them deeply during whatever that hard time was. But Paul says godliness doesn't just have value for the here and now. It also has value for the life to come, for heaven, he's saying. Maybe you've seen the movie Gladiator before. I love that movie. There's a line in the movie where um, the main character, Maximus, he, he's, he's kind of talking to a group of soldiers, and he says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. And then they go and chop up a bunch of barbarians after that, if you haven't seen the film. What we do in this life echoes in eternity. Well, it turns out that at least part of that idea is true because Paul teaches here the same thing. He says the way that you center your life around God now is going to impact your life in heaven. So how does that happen? Well, I have, I have no idea, honestly. Um, Paul does not get into the details. He doesn't spell it out exactly. We're left to guess. It's, it's a mystery to us. Is he talking about rewards that godly people receive in heaven? Maybe. Is he talking about the experience of heaven for godlier people being different? Maybe. Is he discussing the fact that a person who's godly now is more prepared to experience heaven? Possibly. We don't know, but the truth is this. The details really don't matter because it's promised here that that will be true. We just have to take that promise at face value and believe it, even though it's hard for us to do that. And in fact, Paul anticipates that we might have questions about this and we might struggle to understand this, which is why in the next sentence he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, he says, trust me, right? It has value now, but godliness will have value to you later. And what he's getting at is that training ourselves for godliness is not worth it just in many ways. What he's trying to say is it is worth it in every way, both now and forever. That's his first first point. He says godliness is of immense value. Second thing he says about godliness is this, is he says it is of immense value, however... It does not come easy. 
Godliness does not come easy, he's going to say. If you look in verse 10, he says this. He says, for this end we toil and strive. The two big words of that sentence are toil and strive. To toil means to grow weary, and to strive means to agonize. And I really appreciate this about the Apostle Paul, and I really appreciate this about the Bible in general. It's part of the reason I believe it's true. Small part, but still a part. Because Paul does not candy coat things. Paul does not disguise godliness as being pain-free or effortless. He's not like a bad used car salesman who does kind of a bait and switch here. He never conceals the fact that centering our lives around God involves sacrifice. And that's very interesting and helpful. You know, I I found in my own life and and I found um, for other people who are Christians that, that sometimes when they try to live out the Christian life, they find that it's very difficult and they think that something must be wrong as a result, okay? Either there's something wrong with me, it's not going as easy as I want it, there's something wrong with God, there's something wrong with the Bible, there's something here that I'm believing that isn't true, and they start to get discouraged, and they think, well, wait, if this is so great, why isn't it easier? And you know what that's like? That's like a person who's a friend of yours who comes to you and tells you that they're, they've just begun training for a marathon, and you say, oh, great, you know, how's the marathon training going so far? And they said, well, I started running today, and the strangest thing happened my legs really hurt. And I had a hard time breathing. I was exhausted. And I found during my whole training that I was struggling just to keep going. Something's really going wrong with this. I I, I think I'm going to drop out. And what you would say to them if you were a good friend is you would say, no, 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 no. Nothing's gone wrong. You're doing great. That's exactly what it's supposed to be like to train for a marathon. So keep striving. Keep running because it will at one point be worth it. But it's hard along the way. The same thing applies in growing in godliness. It's not easy. Some of you looked at the weather outside today and you thought, I don't want to sit inside in this auditorium right now, right? And it was a, it was a struggle. It was a battle for you to come here this morning. Uh, it's a battle to set your alarm early in the morning, especially those of you who already get up early, to spend some time reading the Word of God, soaking in it, spending some time building and growing your relationship with God through prayer. That's a battle. That's not easy. Right? When that alarm goes off and you know you could have an extra free minutes, it's a tug of war that happens within all of us. It's a battle to stay in relationships with people who help us to grow and to be vulnerable with them and let them be vulnerable with us. It's a battle to rein in our thoughts and our attitudes and our behaviors. It's a battle to forgive those who hurt us and to love those who annoy us and to serve those who drain us. It's a battle. But the truth is that centering our lives around God is not our natural bent. Okay? It just doesn't come easy for us. And God, in this passage, calls us to strive for something that's hard. And he's not apologetic about it at all. 
God is not afraid to ask you to do something that is difficult. I have a real good friend of mine who all his life loved Hummers, particularly military-style Hummers. And a long time ago, somebody um, let him borrow one, and he called me, and uh, he said, hey, do you want to go off-roading? And I said, sure, you know, and so we went to this place. I, I don't even remember where it was, but I think it wasn't even designed for cars. It was like for dirt bikes. And uh, this Hummer was like a tank. I mean, I, I couldn't believe what we were able to do in this Hummer. We crashed through this forest, you know, and there were these steep hills that, that, that we, um, you know, went up. And, and this friend of mine, whose name was Donovan, was an insane driver, but fortunately, the, um, the, the hills were, like, you couldn't be stopped in this Hummer. And at one point, I, I literally thought I was going to die. You know, I, I, uh, I slammed my head on the dashboard, even though I had my seatbelt on. And I don't even know how that's possible, but it, it, it did happen. And, 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 you know, Donovan just kind of looked at me and, yeah, like, this is what going off-roading in a Hummer with me is like. And, you know, we just kept barreling along. Well, not long after that, Hummers became popular and many people bought them. And it was noted at the time, however, that many of the Hummers that were purchased never left the pavement. And what happened was that these Hummers were used to drive people back and forth from work and to stop at Kroger and pick up laundry and drive kids to soccer practice and my friend Donovan was very sad about that because he felt that Hummers were capable of so much more than that. And so often in Scripture, God calls you and I to strive for more. He assumes that we're built to climb and to endure and to make a mark and to leave a legacy and a life that's easy and smooth, that might be nice, but it isn't what we were made for. God did not build us for safety and for comfort. He built us to make a difference. There is, um, for myself, no Christ follower that I have ever met who doesn't struggle with something. I've never met anybody who would say that their life is free of struggle. I've never met any Christ follower who has ever said that their life doesn't have hills and rocks and mud in front of them. I've never met a single Christ follower who doesn't wrestle with insecurity and temptation and lukewarmness. And the reason I believe that is, is that the Christian life Growing in godliness is a calling that is way beyond us. It's too hard for us. It's too much. We can't do it. And it forces us into a position of desperation and dependence and need. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul goes with his next sentence. He says, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people especially those who believe. He points us right to that. If godliness was easy, all right, if every day you woke up and all it was was rainbows and lollipops, it was easy to do the right thing, your heart was always warmed up and in the right place, what need for God would you or any of us have? 
But what God wants us to do is he wants us to rest our hope, not on our own competence, but on him alone, and to recognize that we need a Savior. And he spells this out in a really interesting way. He says, first of all, that God is a Savior to everybody. Everybody needs him as a Savior, right? And what he's getting at is that God rescues every person all the time. You're being rescued from suffocation right now by the oxygen that God provides for you. Without God's saving in that way, we'd all be dead. God rescues us from starvation with food. He rescues us from loneliness with relationships. We are dependent on God constantly. But Paul says, but in the case of a believer, they are especially saved by God because his son, Jesus Christ, has rescued them from their sins, right? God has saved our souls eternally. Our sins have been forgiven. Our future has been secured, and we've been brought into the family of God. Everybody needs God to save them. But God's son came to save us in the most important and best way. And so to summarize all of this, what Paul is saying is train for godliness with your hope set on the living God who rescues you. Strive to center your life around God because it's worth it and he's worth it and don't let the fact that it's hard stop you. Okay. Is everybody with me? I feel like I need to take a breath. Maybe you do too. But I want to say one more thing that is so important and so helpful about this little section. And I want to point you to just one word that he uses that um, it, just, it just changes everything in all of this. And that is the word train. Okay, Paul says train for godliness. Now what's interesting about that is you might think, well, he doesn't really even need to use that word, right? Why doesn't he just say, be godly? He could have said that, but he says instead, train for godliness. I, I want to just think for a few minutes about this word and why it's so important. It's a word that comes from the Greek word, which means gymnase is the way it's pronounced in Greek. Gymnase is where we get the English word gymnasium. Okay, So what Paul is saying here is just like you would go to the gymnasium to train for a specific sport or a specific event, he says, train yourself in that way to live a godly life that centers around God. Now, here's what I want you to know about the word train. Train is a word that denotes progress, not arrival. Okay? Training is done for increased improvement and refinement, but training does not demand perfection. In fact, in many ways, the word training assumes failure. The word training assumes failure, and this has huge implications for us. Okay, Let me just give you a little um, picture, a little illustration of this. Imagine the Olympics. Okay, Imagine you're watching the Olympics on television. Summer games, it's gymnastics. Okay, And there's a woman who is completing in the floor exercises, you know, where they, they run down the mat, do a bunch of flips and stuff like that. And uh, this woman has practiced and practiced. She has trained her entire life for this event. Every uh, bit of momentum in, in her short life has been built in this direction. And this moment in the Olympics is her test. 
okay? And the pressure on her is incredible. You can feel it even through the television screen. Her coach is watching her. Her teammates are watching her. Her opponents are staring her down. Everyone in the stadium is, is glued to what she's doing. And in fact, the whole world is watching through the medium of television. And she begins her routine. And everything is going well, just as she's planned. And, and then she starts into a, a particular maneuver, and she runs as fast as she can. She jumps up in the air. She lands to go from a pivot into a flip, and her ankle catches. And she falls face first and crashes right onto the mat. And the whole stadium goes, oh, and, and you and your family go, oh. And she gets back up again, and she forces a smile, as we've so many times seen in those situations, and she keeps going, but you know she is devastated. And the routine concludes. She walks off the mat, and immediately tears begin to flow from her eyes. And she has been hoping for perfect tens all of her life, but what she receives is fours and fives. And she goes home and will go on to replay that mistake in her mind every single day for the rest of her life. She feels dejected and defeated. Okay, now, I want you to imagine the same girl two weeks earlier, okay? Now, she is at a small gym. She's practicing the exact same routine that she just did in the Olympics, but it's just her and her coach this time. And, and she goes to, to practice the same thing, and wouldn't you know it, exactly the same thing happens. She makes that jump. She goes to pivot into a flip. Her ankle catches. She falls flat on her face. What does she do? She gets up. She shakes it off. She tries again. And her mistake is forgotten by lunch, right? Now, what's the difference? The difference is this. When you train, the pressure is off. When you're training, the pressure is off. Now, the big test for every one of us who are in this room and for the entire world, every person as a whole, will come in our life at the end of our life. The Bible tells us that there will be a day when each person will stand before God and God will evaluate their life. It also tells us that entrance into heaven requires a perfect score, all tens. And we should really think about this because this is a test, an entrance exam that none of us can pass. None of us have been perfect. But the good news, the best news of the Bible is that Jesus offers to stand at that moment in our place. He offers to take that test for us and because he was the son of God and lived a perfect life, he will receive from God at that moment all tens. And what God offers to do in his grace and mercy to each person is he offers to apply Jesus' score to us. And so in that test, I can pass with flying colors. Christians don't have to take the test. 
Jesus takes the test for them. And what that means is this, that in the Christian life, we are always in the state of training. And what happens for us is that we get to receive the benefits of the training without the pressure of the testing. And this changes everything. If I know that a test is looming in front of me in something that I'm practicing over here, then I am motivated over here by fear and by pressure. But if I know that I will never need to take the test, or better yet, that I will come through the test perfectly, that gives me the freedom to try my best, to take a few risks, to step out of my comfort zone without fear of failure or defeat. And this is such a beautiful harmony of what God invites us into in the Christian life. On one hand, he expects stuff out of us. He tells us, toil and strive, work hard at godliness. And on the other side, he says, but thanks to my son, the pressure is off. So you can do that in an atmosphere of safety and of grace, not in an atmosphere of fear of failure. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? I'm going to ask you to do something hard, and if you don't do it, if you can, I'm going to make a way for you. I love that. There are so many implications of that for the Christian life. I'm going to just say one really quick. Maybe you're in this room right now, and you feel like a fallen athlete. Maybe you, you are, are like that girl. You are down on the mat, spiritually speaking, right now. You have blown it. There's some um, temptation that you've given into. There's some line that you've crossed. You've failed in some serious way in your life. And right now, when you think about the, the Christian life, the only thing that you feel is shame and defeat. And you're just like that gymnast. You're forcing a smile. Nobody would know except for you, but you hope they don't look too closely. And what you're thinking to yourself, what rolls through your mind is, oh, this is too much. I've fallen too far. I don't know how I could ever climb my way back to God's forgiveness again. God is so disappointed in me. And there is no hope. And if you've said those things in your mind, do you know where you're at? You're at verse 7 of what Paul said here. You are believing an irreverent, silly myth because nowhere in this book does it say any of those things. You've fallen for that. You've fallen for the thing that Paul told Timothy to flee from. Because what the Bible teaches is that there's hope for every person. There's hope for every fallen athlete that Jesus died for those sins too and that God's desire is not to judge you, but to help you, to restore you, to forgive you, to give you a new start. And this is training. So get back up again. Come on. That's, that's God's hope. That's what Paul's teaching here. Train yourself to godliness, for godliness. It's not easy, but it will be worth it. And if you screw up, thank God for Jesus. Thank God that we have a living hope that we can lean on. It's a really tremendous passage. Do you need another breath? I do. Um, the last thing he says, and I'll, I won't spend a lot of time on this, is he says to young people, don't just train for godliness, he said, but let your godliness be evident. Be a model of godliness for other people so that they can see what that looks like too. He says this in verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, 
in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, this is a verse that gets read to a lot of graduates, you know, high school students, junior hires. It totally applies to them. But Timothy's in his 30s, so it, it applies to him too. It's just as important. Paul says, don't let anybody despise you because of your youth. And what he's saying is, live such a life that nobody really cares how old you are or how old you aren't. We've all met young people who are cocky and arrogant and loud and obnoxious, and as a result, we have no real regard for their opinion, and we kind of tune them out a little bit. But we've all also met young people who are so warm and kind and humble and strong that we give them our respect, and we really do care about their opinion, and their age isn't even a factor. You know, they're They're a close friend of ours, even though there may be a difference in age. And Paul says, live such a life that nobody even considers your age. They can't, there's nothing to look down on you for, so they're not going to do that about your youthfulness. And he says, instead, set an example. Now, it's interesting. I've heard um, celebrities and athletes, you you might have also, who have really done something kind of stupid and, and messed up, and the media gives them, you know, comes back at them for that and says, well, you're an example, so you shouldn't do this. And, and they respond by saying, well, no, 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 I'm not an example. Right? Nobody should ever look to me as a role model. And if a kid does, that's kind of their fault because I'm not a role model. I've never set myself up in that place. But you know what? The problem with that, of course, is that they can't control who they're a role model to and, and who they aren't. They don't get to choose who looks up to them and who doesn't look up to them. And that is the same for us, everyone is an example to someone, and most of us don't even really know, we aren't aware who we're an example to because we can't control it. So the question is not whether or not we're an example. The question in the Bible is what kind of an example will we be? And what's um, interesting is that in a church this size, and our church is relatively large, it's a medium-sized church, it's easy to feel like you're kind of a small fish in a big sea and that your example doesn't mean so much. That your positive example doesn't necessarily impact people much and your negative example doesn't necessarily impact people much because there's so many other examples around. And that kind of thinking is especially true for people who are young. But, but Paul says here, and it's significant that he's talking to young people, he says, your example really does matter. He says, so live your life as, as an example of these things. I'm going to move towards close just with one example uh, of an example. And um, this was a story, you know, this is a situation that meant something to me years ago and still does today. Um, there was a young man years ago who came to our church, and he had special needs, but he was very high-functioning um, special needs, and his name um, was and is Max. Uh, he came to our starting line program, which is for fourth and fifth graders first, and then afterwards he transitioned into our Crossroads program, which is middle school, and Crossroads was such a great experience for him that he ended up staying there for many years. We didn't promote him into high school because it was such a, a good fit for him there, and Max graduated from high school a long time ago. He's in his mid-20s now, and he works as a greeter um, at Meyer. He's probably greeted you before if you've shopped at Meyer. Well, there's a group of men who were his leaders in Crossroads who still now get together occasionally um, for dinner with Max just to kind of check in on him. 
And um, it just happened a few weeks ago they got together. Max is just a wonderful person, um, fun to be around. He's, he's a treasure, okay? Well, I remember the first day that Max came to our church. He came again to Starting Line, and I happened to be teaching that day. And he came late with his mother. His mother went, came to drop him off. And I was teaching, if you can kind of imagine, to a group like this where everybody was facing me this way. And the door that they came in was over there. And I could see on his mom's face that she was so nervous. And I could see on Max's face that his eyes were puffy and that he had been crying because he didn't want to come. And he looked like he was about ready to cry again. And I was faced with this problem because I was right in the middle of something and none of our leaders saw that they had come to the door. And so I thought, okay, i got to wrap this up really quick because I don't want them to leave. And just as I started to think that way, there was a kid who was in fifth grade. I've tried to remember who it is, but I don't. And this fifth grader saw the same thing that I did. And he got up out of his chair. He went over to the door. I found out later, not even knowing who Max was, invited him to come in, brought him over to where his chair was, sat him down, went over, got a new chair for himself, and sat down next to Max. And I thought that that was amazing, personally, that a fifth grader would show that sort of an example. And I really wonder, to this day, if Max and his mom might have left and never come back had that kid not done what he did. Now, obviously, that kid was an example, right? He did a little thing. It wasn't a huge deal but it made a big impact on Max and his mom. But the thing is, it also made a big impact on me because now it's you know, almost 15 years later and I still remember it. But what's really interesting about that little example is that now I share it with you and maybe his example will impact you too. In fact, maybe, maybe next week it'll be totally full in here and there'll be a visitor that you can tell is new and they're looking for a seat and one of you will think of this little boy and stand up and say, please sit here and you'll go and sit in, in the back and, and maybe that person who hasn't been to church in, in 15 years will say, wow, there's something really great about the people who are here. I'm going to stick around. And what will have happened is you can connect the dots all the way back to that little example that that little boy in starting line did years and years ago. And that, that's the power of example. You never know who's watching, and you never know how wide the impact your example will be. And, and finally, Paul says, so, so focus your example on five Areas. He gives Timothy five areas of, of, of focus. He says, the words that come out of your mouth, remember that someone is listening. The way that you conduct your life, remember someone is watching. The caliber of your love for other people, someone is experiencing. The faith that you profess that God will keep his promises Someone is inspecting. And the purity of your character, someone is imitating. Paul is saying to Timothy and to all young people and all of us that we have an incredible opportunity to do good with our lives through our example. And Paul believed that old and young, the example of godliness was incredibly important. And I, I hope you believe that today, too.
I hope that you believe and, and you've owned the fact that you are an example. And I don't say that to chide anybody. I say, you, I, I, I say that to say God wants to use you in that way to impact a person's life just like he used this little boy. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for how it speaks to our hearts. We thank you for how you call us to do hard things, but, um, but Jesus is the one who really does the heavy lifting. And we thank you that we can count on that and depend on that and that we can train without pressure of judgment and fear of failure. That's such a gift. Thank you that every life in this room matters, that every person is an example, and we pray that um, we would be a church of people who understand that and value that and who want to have impact on the lives of other people. We thank you for Jesus, who is our example, and we thank you that he died for our sins, gives us new life, and that we can walk with him and trust him and know him even today. We pray that you would help us in that. In Jesus' name.